I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you about the importance of this pulpit. Kyle made reference to the pulpit where the Word of God is proclaimed on a faithful basis here at Christ Fellowship. I want you to remember that the pulpit has not always had a a central place in the life of the church. Most of you that know me uh, pretty well know that I love the Reformation. Well, it was the Reformation of the 16th century that restored the rightful place of the pulpit to the household of faith. Before the days of the Reformation, there may have been a pulpit in a local church, wherever it may have existed, but the Word of God, for the most part, was not proclaimed faithfully in an expository fashion from the pulpit. I remember hearing a story about uh, a pastor who received a call to shepherd a local church. This is a church where the pulpit had been marginalized, where the pulpit had played a lesser role than it should have played in the life of that church. And the first thing he did, in fact, before he was even installed in this church, is he went and he put the pulpit at the center of the sanctuary and he bolted it to the floor. I love that. Now, this pulpit is not bolted to the floor. Perhaps it should be. Perhaps it should be. But I want you to know that in, in, in my mind at least, and I hope that you agree with me, this pulpit has been bolted to the floor. I want you to have, uh, have a chance to read with me John chapter 15 and stand out of respect for the authority of God's word. John chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. The title of the message is The Joy of Walking with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We join me in a word of prayer. A father with a a pulpit that should be bolted into the floor. We come to you with hearts that are are filled with joy because we hold your word in our hands. We desire uh, that word to take residence in our hearts and in our minds this Lord's day. Father, we pray for your spirit to come in a mighty way. I pray that your spirit would come in a mighty way even as a handful of people are praying for us now. I remember years ago when... A group of people went to visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And they asked, what is the secret of the success of this church? And Charles Haddon Spurgeon led that group of people downstairs into the basement. And they peered in through the window and saw a group of people praying on their knees for this local church. God, I pray for those who are faithfully in prayer now that you would move in a mighty way, that you would bring encouragement to them as they pray for us in this service to receive encouragement from your word. Once again, may your spirit do a mighty work. May you challenge and encourage your elect 
And may you draw your elect to yourself, those who have not yet believed. May the sheep hear and believe and be transformed forever. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, how can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? That is the burning question that was in the hearts of the Reformers during the days of the 16th century. Now, the answer to that question is very simple, it's very basic, but it's also very profound. The answer to the question is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now that we have a a, a firm grasp, if you will, on the matter of justification by faith alone... Now that we understand that we are rightly related to God by, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question of fellowship with God becomes very important. Most of you know that there is a, a deep and abiding joy that comes in walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a joy that surpasses all other kinds of joy. It is a, a deeply personal joy. For the more we learn about Jesus, the more we fall in love with Jesus. It is a deeply practical joy, for Jesus finds great delight in meeting your needs. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus finds great delight in answering your prayers. That he finds great delight in answering the prayers of the men and women who are in the prayer room right now. He is delighted to do that. I also want you to know that it is a deeply profound joy to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the the great mysteries of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ loves His people with the same kind of love that exists in the Trinitarian relationship. So here we are in John chapter 15. I cannot wait until we get to John chapter 17. We call it the high priestly prayer. And in the high priestly prayer, that's one of the the key lessons that we will be drawn to. that, That the Lord Jesus Christ, He has a love for His people. And it's the same love that exists in the fellowship of the Trinity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But first things first. In John chapter 15, Jesus employs something that fits our little community very well. He employs an agricultural metaphor. It's not a baseball metaphor. It's not a sports metaphor. It's it's not an automotive metaphor. It's an agricultural metaphor that will help his disciples, that includes you and me if you're walking with Jesus, that will help us understand the remarkable benefits of being in relationship with him. He will use everyday terms that we can all understand, even if, like me, you're not very agriculturally minded. You don't understand it that well, but you do know what a vine is. You do know what a branch is, and, of course, you all know what fruit is. And so as we look at the vine and the branch and the fruit, we will uncover some very important lessons as we begin to understand with greater clarity the joyful journey that every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ enjoys and embraces. Let me set the agricultural metaphor in place for you, if I could. Jesus says, first of all, something about himself in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine. He's not just any vine. In this metaphor, in this example, in this illustration, he says he's a different kind of vine. He is the true vine. And then he addresses his father who is in heaven. He says the father is the vine dresser. And then finally, he says something about his people. He says that we are the branches. One commentator says, just as a branch depends entirely on the vine for life, sustenance, growth, and fruit, so too believers depend completely on the divine Lord as the source of their spiritual life and effect. Now, with the matter of the branches in place, 
Jesus will talk in this narrative about two kinds of branches. First, there is the branch that bears much fruit. Then there is the branch that doesn't bear any fruit. And this morning, by way of practical implication, you need to understand that there are only two kinds of people. There are not only two kinds of people here at Christ Fellowship. There are only two kinds of people in our community and in our country and in this world. There are those who bear fruit and there are those who don't bear fruit. Some branches do bear fruit. Some branches don't bear fruit. Now, these two branches are are set apart or distinguished in John chapter 15. Jesus says it like this, and we're going to explore this in great detail. Some of those branches abide. Mark that word abide because it occurs at least 10 times in John chapter 15 verses 1 to 11. And so some of the branches abide. Some branches, can you guess, do not abide. And so over the next two weeks, I want you to see how the Lord Jesus Christ describes and distinguishes between two kinds of branches. And then also we will draw some very important practical applications that flow out of our Lord's teachings. The branches that bear fruit are what Jesus refers to as converted people. The the branches that do not bear fruit are unconverted people. And so, in many ways this morning, this is a very simple, easy-to-understand sermon. Everyone is a branch in this story. Some are converted. The ones who are converted bear fruit. Some are unconverted. The unconverted branches do not bear fruit. My heroes, the Puritans, whenever a man of God would stand at the pulpit and proclaim the word of God, it didn't matter if there were 20 people in the sanctuary or 2,000 people in the sanctuary. The Puritan always assumed there were some before him who were branches that were not bearing fruit. That is to say, the Puritan preacher, the Puritan pastor always assumed that there were unconverted people in his midst. What do you think I do this morning? I always assume. It doesn't matter how much I love you and how much I know you. I always assume that there are unconverted people here at Christ Fellowship. And so the preaching ministry reflects that view. Today we will focus on several marks of a converted person. Next week we will move on to discover the marks of an unconverted person. But for our purposes today, look with me at the marks of a converted person. One of the things that we will see, and I had you highlight in your mind just a moment ago, is this very important lesson, and that is that a converted person abides in Christ. A converted person abides in Christ. Now, the word that dominates this passage, and you probably noticed it when we read the passage together. The word that dominates this passage is the little word abide. It comes from the Greek word meno. Not the minnow that swims, the minnow, M-E-N-O. And we see the word, as I mentioned a moment ago, occur no less than ten times in this passage. The word abide that comes from the Greek word meno means this. It means to continue in a particular kind of activity. We would put it this way as Americans. This is the way I would put it. Meno means this. Abide means this. Keep on keeping on. Can you relate to that one? Keep on keeping on. So if you're a student, keep on keeping on. If you're an athlete, keep on keeping on. If you're, uh, an, if you're an employer or an employee and you're wrestling and you're struggling, keep on keeping on. That's what it means to abide. The word means to continue in a fixed state. It means to endure. Now, this would be a real loose paraphrase. It means to hang in there. I don't really like that one, but it means keep going, keep plugging away. It literally means unbroken and sustained communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to abide. And the word should probably be very familiar to you as we have already seen it throughout the Gospel of John. 
And as you, as you read the Bible, you see that different writers are attracted to different words. For instance, the Apostle Paul loves the word justified or justification. The Apostle John really likes the word light. He uses the word light all throughout 1 John. But he also likes the word abide. And he uses it in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he's quoting Jesus now, of course, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him. That is, abide in Jesus, so that when He, or Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love, or whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. 2 John, verse 9. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. There John's talking about an unconverted branch, a branch that does not bear fruit, to go back to Jesus' metaphor. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so Jesus sets forth in John chapter 15 a principle for the disciples that are in his close proximity. And he also sets forth principles for all subsequent disciples. In other words, the lesson that Jesus has for his disciples isn't for them and them alone. It's for you in the pews. It's for his people in this day and in this culture. Now here's the principle that he sets forth for all of us. He says, essentially, that every converted person, that is, every follower of Christ, that is, every Christian must do something. They must abide in Christ. This passage describes, as I noted earlier, several characteristics. We won't even get to all of them today. We'll complete this next week. But it describes several characteristics of the person, the Christ follower, who abides in Christ. We're only going to look at three this morning. The first characteristic of the, the branch who abides is actually implied in the passage. It's not actually stated, but it's implied and it's built into what it means to abide in Christ. The second characteristic and the third characteristic are actually found directly in the text. So look at the first one with me. The first characteristic of a person who abides in Christ is this, and it'll be the most basic thing we look at this morning. Disciples believe in Jesus. Disciples believe in Jesus. Once again, Jesus never says that in this passage, but it's part and parcel of what it means to abide. And so this morning, I don't want to make any assumptions. I want, to, I want to make sure that we understand together that if you are claiming to abide in Christ, if you are claiming to have unbroken communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, the implication of that is you believe in Jesus. Now remember, the word abide means to continue in uh, an activity or a state. And so any person, once again, who is abiding in Jesus, by definition, believes in Jesus. You remember Acts 16, 31, that says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be what? You will be saved, you and your household. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from eternal destruction. 
For with the heart, Paul says, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can say it like this. All who believe in Jesus, by definition, put their trust in Jesus. And all who put their trust in Jesus have made this commitment. I am turning away from my sin. Everyone who believes and understands that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Everyone who believes and understands that Jesus is an exclusive Savior. There are no other saviors. There is no other path to God. And that is not a popular message in our culture, is it? It is not popular to say you can't get to heaven through Muhammad. You can't get to heaven through Joseph Smith. You can't get to heaven via Islam. You can't get to heaven via good works. You can't get to heaven uh, because you pray the rosary or you confess your sins to a priest. The only way you get to heaven is through Christ and Christ alone. Through Christ and Christ alone. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we will be saved. So let me ask you a a massive question. This is a a very important question with, with gigantic implications for your life now and your life to come. It's a simple question, it's a basic question, and it's very easy to understand, but it's a question that you must face sometime in your life. Here's the question. Do you believe? I know for the vast majority of you say, Pastor, move forward. I believe. I believed 20 years ago. I believed 30, 40, 50 years ago. But for the rest of you, it's, it's an absolutely important question. Do you believe? Now, I'm not merely asking whether or not you believe that Jesus exists. I'm not merely asking if you believe that even Jesus is the God-man. And I'm not even merely asking whether or not you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Now, hear me very carefully. While it is absolutely crucial... While it is absolutely crucial that you believe in the existence of Jesus... And the deity of Jesus, that is that he is in fact the God-man and that he died on a wooden cross for the sins of everyone who had ever believed. I am asking you this question. Have you turned from your sins? Have you turned from your sins and turned to the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your savior Is He your Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus for your eternal salvation? And so the first mark, the first characteristic, if you will, of a person who is converted, a person who abides in Christ, is that they believe in Jesus. That is to say, this person possesses saving faith. I want you to remember there's a difference between professing And possessing. You can profess but not actually possess. And so do you profess and do you also embrace the fact that Jesus is your Savior and Jesus is your Lord? Do you possess saving faith? I want to move on and look with you at the second characteristic of the converted person, the person who abides in Christ. And it may come as a bit of a surprise for some of you. It's found in verse 2. Read it with me. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. More on that next week. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The second characteristic of the converted person is that disciples experience the fatherly discipline of God. Disciples experience the fatherly discipline of God. Here is a promise. If you are a disciple, you will, 
And it's a guarantee you will experience the hand of the vine dresser's loving discipline. Now, who is the vine dresser? It's none other than the father. The father here, or I should say the son, promises that his father will discipline you in love if you're a disciple. Hebrews 12 says it like this. And have have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Many of your parents, and you have had the occasion where you tell your young son or daughter that mommy or daddy needs to discipline you. Have you ever had the occasion where your son or daughter rolls the eyes? Oh, man. That is really annoying. And that's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He says, we should not be weary. It's funny, when I read that word, I think... I see the eyeballs being rolled. Don't be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Jesus says it like this. God prunes the fruit, the fruit bearing branches for a specific purpose. And do you see it there emerge in verse 2? He says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He disciplines. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Built into verse 2 is what's called in the Greek language a purpose clause. In other words, something happens for something else to result. And Jesus says, this is why the vine dresser prunes the branches so that they would bear more fruit. In Hebrews 12.10, they disciplined, they disciplined us for a time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us. That is, God disciplines us. Why? For our good, that we may share in His holiness. Here's what's fascinating. If you would look with me at verse 2, look with me at the word prunes. The word prunes. Not the prunes that you eat. Are you with me? The other kind of prunes, P-R-U-N-E-S. The word translated prunes comes from a Greek word that means to make clean or to cleanse. It means to purify. It literally means to clear out the unproductive wood. What's fascinating is in verse 3, the same Greek word translated prunes is also utilized, but it's translated with a different English word. Verse 3. Already you are... What's that word? Clean. That comes from the same Greek word translated prunes. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Therefore, it is through the means of God's word that he prunes the fruitful branches. Why? so that they would bear more fruit. Have you ever had that happen? Kyle gave us a great challenge this morning, to spend time every morning in the Word of God. Have you ever opened the Word of God for just a bit of real encouragement and something else happens? Where you read something and you say, Oh, I am so convicted. I am so challenged. I am cut to the quick. What's happening is God the Father is using the Word He's using sacred scripture to to do that pruning ministry for our good and for his glory. Now, on October 31st, 2017, we will have a celebration. It's something that has never happened in church history. It's something that will never happen again. It's something I've been looking forward to for about the last 20 years. On October 31st, 2017, that's... Roughly a year and a half from now, you're like, man, you've got issues. We will celebrate as a church family with churches all around the world the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm gearing up for it. And so in order to prepare for that massive celebration, uh, about four months ago, I started rereading Calvin's Institutes. 
You say, what's Calvin's Institutes? Well, when John Calvin was 27 years of age, recently converted, he sat down to write the Christian the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He finished the first volume in 1536. It took him many, many, many years to get to the last volume, the volume that we possess now and is still in print. Can you believe it? Almost 500 years later. And he presented in 1536 the first edition, which if my memory serves me correctly, was only six chapters. Now it's huge. But he presented his first edition of Calvin's Institutes to the King of France. It was the number one selling book in France in 1536. Now, we're in a a, a position in church history where many evangelicals have never heard of Calvin's Institutes. And so, I set out to reread Calvin's Institutes for my edification, for my encouragement as we move forward and prepare to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And do you know what happened? I usually finish the sermon Thursday afternoon. Carmel needs the notes by about noon. So that's my goal, to finish the sermon. Well, if you have ever taught or preached before, and Chris, you're going to understand this, and those of you that have taught or preached, you know, Tom, you know this, the sermon is never complete. Well, I thought the sermon was done on Thursday until I read a portion from the Institutes um, about three hours ago. And here's what surfaces in the Institutes. As we learn that God is the vine dresser, as God the Father will discipline the fruit-bearing branches, Calvin says this, God works in His elect in two ways. Inwardly by His Spirit outwardly by His Word. By His Spirit, illuminating their minds and training their hearts to the practice of righteousness, He makes them new creatures, while by His Word, He stimulates them to long for and seek for this renovation. You see, it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God that transforms the people of God. And God will do that good work In you, this morning, he will do that good work as you submit yourself to sacred scripture. Jesus says, verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so I would ask this morning, how is God's word making inroads into your life this week? Hebrews 4.12 says it like this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how the word of God does its work in our lives. You read the Psalms, you read the Proverbs, you read the Gospels, you read the Pentateuch, you read the major prophets, you read the minor prophets, you read the the poetry literature, you read the epistles, and the Word of God does this, this marvelous, sanctifying work in you. And so I would ask, what is it that the Word of God needs to address in your heart today? And we're all different. Some of you need to have the, the matter of pride or jealousy dealt with. You need to deal with the, the sin of fear or the, the sin of, of selfishness or sexual sin. Perhaps you're here and you need to deal with, on one hand, lust, or on the other hand, laziness. Or you're here and you have unresolved anger. You hold something against your brother or sister. The Word of God will surface those kinds of sins, and it will stare you in the face until you come to the place where you say, I confess, I repent, please forgive me. And the pruning work of the vine dresser will have done a a marvelous work in your life, enabling you to do what? To bear more fruit. Well, the first mark of a converted person is that a converted person believes in Jesus. The second mark is that he or she experiences the fatherly discipline of God. I want to close this morning by looking at the third mark. And it's a mark that also appears in verse 2. And that is that disciples 
Disciples bear fruit. They bear fruit. Now, fruit in the New Testament is very basic. It's a a deed or an activity. Fruit entails a deed or an activity. You could put it this way. Fruit is good work done to the glory of God. And I want to look at this in, in some rather, uh, in, in greater detail and have you have your Bibles open. And I want to look at several scriptures with you so that we can understand what it is we're talking about. Because Jesus says in John fifteen eight, this is, this is to my Father's glory that you bear, someone help me, much fruit showing yourself to be what? My disciples. And so I think it's very important that we understand what does fruit entail? How do I know that, that, that God is producing good fruit in my life? Is it like the picture we showed earlier that I know made some of you hungry or thirsty to look at those beautiful grapes? Is that a portrait of your life? Or is it the second picture where something's getting crimped off because it's a dead branch? Well, notice, first of all, with me, if you turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And to be clear, what I want to do here, just for a few minutes, is look at three or four passages of Scripture that will help us to identify what good fruit looks like. What, did it, what does it look like exactly? So, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 14. And the Apostle Peter says it like this. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here is one thing that we understand about spiritual fruit. If God is producing spiritual fruit in your life, and by the way, it's the only way it can happen. We can't bear spiritual fruit in and of ourselves. Any spiritual fruit that emerges from our lives is, is owing to God's sovereign grace. Well, here's the first thing that Peter helps us understand. Namely, a life that is set apart to God. That would be the first sign that spiritual fruit is emerging in your life. That you have a desire for holiness. You have a a passion for holiness. Holiness simply means to be set apart unto God. Notice also in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, if you would turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. One of the first verses that I memorized as a child in the King James, mind you, and I still can't get away from it, was Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that goes like this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I see some of you shaking your heads like, yeah, I memorized that in the King James too. That was a long time ago. Verse 6, would you read it with me? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so in a very wide sense, in a very general sense, you see, if you are a fruit-bearing branch, you will, as we've already discovered, believe in Jesus, that you will have a, a faith, and it's a faith that is robust. It is, I might add, a faith that sometimes falters. Have you ever been there? Or you mess it up, or you screw up? And you commit a sin and your faith falters and you run back to the cross and you ask for forgiveness. Don't we serve a wonderful Savior? Turn also with me to Galatians chapter 5. Another very important aspect of bearing fruit to the glory of God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is it that constitutes spiritual fruit to the glory of God? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. 
I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. Somewhere along the way, I think that we, we see the fruit of the Spirit and we feel like we should just be like cruising through the Christian life and we have all of those. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's just great, right? Is that your daily experience? The answer would be probably not. Why? Because we stumble along the way. Some days... We lack joy. Other days, we lack peace. And what I've discovered is this, is while love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control should mark our lives, those are marks of the fruit-bearing branch, we discover this, that it is a fight. Is anyone with me? Think about joy. Some of you are not naturally joyful. In fact, I would say probably most of us are not naturally in and of ourselves joyful. So what do you do? You fight for joy. I have to fight for joy. How do we do it? We do it by the power of the Spirit. And as we're fighting to maintain love, joy, peace, patience, we remember it is only it is only God that enables those characteristics in us, but it is a fight nonetheless. A life that bears fruit to the glory of God is faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, there are many, many sermons we could preach on this, correct? But to be faithful means I'm a, a faithful father. I'm a faithful mother. I'm a faithful employee. I'm a faithful church member. I am a faithful citizen. I am a faithful friend. I am a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. One more I'd have you look with me is back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift. I hear pages still turning. Go ahead and keep going there. But know this. While you're turning, that if you're a fruit-bearing branch, you have received a gift. That, that is the implication here. You received at least one spiritual gift. And so as each has received a gift or gifts, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Some of you say this, Pastor, I know I've received a gift, but I'm not serving. My challenge to you would be this. It's really simple. Start serving. Start serving. Use the gift of mercy. Use the gift of administration. Use the gift of helps. Use the gift of teaching. Use the gift of encouragement. Use the gift of exhortation. Say, what is my ministry? This is a theme we'll hear over and over again at Christ Fellowship. Is how am I plugged into ministry? My personal dream is when we move forward into the future, if anyone came up to you and said, Joe, Wanda, Pete, Cindy, what's your ministry at Christ Fellowship? That every one of you would be able to say, Oh, I serve in youth ministry. Or I serve in children's ministries. Or I'm on the prayer team. Or I'm the chairperson of the XYZ mat. That each one of us would be bearing fruit to the glory of God. One writer says, Since all true believers... Those who abide in Christ and He in them will bear spiritual fruit. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Did you hear those words? There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. I want you to see something else. And you say, man, you're really going for it on this third point. It's important. I want you to see that if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. To Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to see this morning that spiritual fruit is not only good work to the glory of God, but spiritual fruit is literally predestined by God in eternity past. I know what you're thinking. There it is again, predestination. Why? Because predestination runs from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Everything is predestined. Why did it happen? It was predestined. 
And here, this is no exception. Spiritual fruit now is predestined by God in eternity past. You lead someone to Jesus, that was predestined. You take a meal to someone to show them kindness, that was predestined. You bring someone in and help them, that was predestined. You share a kind word with someone, that was predestined. Who gets the glory? The living God. The living God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his, you remember he's the vine dresser, Jesus says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now notice, which God prepared beforehand, that is an eternity past, that we should walk in them. And so know this, every time that you do something good to the glory of God, You give glory to God because He predestined in eternity past that good work. People ask, when was the predestined work of God done? The answer, in eternity past. I don't understand. Ask your mother. (laughs) Spiritual fruit then, as we've already indicated, gives evidence of our discipleship. John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. I talked to a friend just a a few days ago, a pastor who I have a great deal of respect for. And this pastor took a, a long, long trip. He went on a journey to encourage a pastor that was being supported by their church. This is a, a pastor on the mission field. And what my friend discovered is that this pastor has begun to embrace the notion that good works contribute to our justification. This is something that is, is beginning to develop steam in Christian circles around the world. Listen, that good works contribute to our justification. Shall I say that more clearly? That Good works are necessary for you to be saved. That is what this pastor is embracing. And I just started a book this morning called, Is the Reformation Over? Why write the book when pastors around the world are saying you have to do things to be justified? No! Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This pastor who believes that good works contribute to his justification has abandoned the gospel. He has polluted the waters of grace with man-based good works and quote-unquote righteousness. Now, please don't misunderstand As we distinguish between justification and sanctification, understand that good works, on one hand, do not merit salvation. But good works flow out of justifying grace. Does that make sense? Is if if you are saved, that good works will flow forth from your branches, to use Jesus' metaphor. Good fruit will result. And so good works are not required in order to receive salvation, but good works flow forth from a person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the theme of the Reformers. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here is what we will discover. While good works are not required for justification or right standing with God, good works will inevitably flow forth from a person who has been justified. James chapter 2 verse 17 says, We are not saved by works, but the, or rather, uh, uh, John MacArthur, quoting James 2.17, says that we are not saved by works, but works are only the proof that faith is genuine, vibrant, and alive. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes it plain that fruit is a crucial sign. Indeed, fruit is a necessary requirement that comes as a result of justification. Here's what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree 
bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, we'll look at that next week, bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. I want you to think deeply with me this morning. I want you to do a, 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 take a spiritual inventory. Not about your husband, not about your wife, not about your children, not about your friends. But to ask deep down, Holy Spirit, what are the things that are flowing forth from my life? Do I love God? Do I love the Word of God? Do I love the people of God? Do I love the local church? Do I find pleasure in obeying God? I want you to remember the principle that runs through this passage, and this will serve as our truth point today, that every converted person, every follower of Jesus, every disciple must abide in Christ. They believe in Jesus. They experience the fatherly discipline of God the Father, the vine dresser. And they, of course, bear good fruit to the glory of God. Friday morning, Friday's my day off. And I, I love, believe it or not, to get up early on Friday morning. If it's a nice day, I take my Bible and my iPad and my Kindle and usually a stack of books, and head out to the, our patio in the back. So I have my stack of toys, and the Bible's not a toy. The rest of them are. And I open the sliding glass door, and I went to take a step, and I look down, and there's this massive slug. Can I be honest with you? Morgan, can I be honest? Okay. I look at the slug, and I think, where's the salt? Right? Raise your hand if you're thinking the same thing. Where's the salt? I'm going to put salt on that thing, and I'm going to destroy that nasty creature. And I thought to myself, no, I'm bigger than that. Don't you feel terrible now? <laughs> so I, I, I had mercy on the slug, and I frankly forgot about the slug. And I went about four steps, and I sat in my chair. And I sat there for about an hour, hour and a half, and then I decided I needed to get up and get some refreshment. That means coffee. And so I went back into the house, and I, and I looked, and the slug had moved about that far. And I thought, oh, my word, that's incredible. The slug moved like almost two feet. I couldn't believe it. Now, I was impressed. I was impressed by the progress of the slug. But it's interesting because my wife is always telling me, honey, you need to come up with, with, with creative Illustrations. That's what the church likes. They like creative illustrations. So this is what I call... <laughs> Aren't you glad she's in the prayer room this morning? This is what I call... There may be a book in this, this idea. The sanctification slug. This is the sanctification slug. It's as if this, this, this illustration just, just crystallized in a matter of seconds. It's, I hate to put it this way, but you... In me, we're slugs. We're slugs. And as we have been studying this passage, I, I'm quite confident that many of you are, are saying to yourself, Oh man, I'm not serving. My growth is so slow. My Bible reading, my prayer life, my love for God. Oh, oh, it's just... And my question would be this. Do you love Jesus at all are you serving him at all are you reading his word at all you see the slug reminded me of me and the slug reminded me of you because oftentimes in the christian life our progress is slow is it not but here is the reality. If you are numbered among God's elect, if you are a, a branch 
that is bearing fruit, even if the progress, even if the progress is slow, here's the reality. You are making progress. Christians make progress. Christians battle sin. Christians uh, bear good fruit. Sometimes the growth is slow going. But you remember my reaction to the slug? Less than two feet in an hour and a half. Wow! I didn't think he'd move an inch. And he moved almost two feet. One of the most impressive features in John Bunyan's epic work, Pilgrim's You got it? Pilgrim's progress is that the main character makes progress. If you've never read it, would you make it a goal in 2016 to read one of the the greatest books ever penned, ever, outside of sacred scripture? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who died when he was 54, read Pilgrim's progress over 100 times. I challenge you to read it once, one time. And here's what you will learn. You will learn that the main character, whose name is Christian, is so much like us. He stumbles, he falls, he capitulates, he compromises, he gives in to the world, he gives in to temptation, he commits sin, but he learns the secret of the Christian life, and it's right over his left shoulder. He learns that every time I sin, I run to the cross and I receive forgiveness. And when I receive forgiveness, like the slug, I make progress. And as he ran to the cross, he made his way slowly but surely to the celestial city. Why do some persevere? That is, why do... The fruit-bearing branches persevere and why others fail to persevere. That is, branches that bear no fruit. Calvin says it like this. We can give no other reason than that the Lord, by His mighty power, strengthens and sustains the elect so that they perish not, while He does not furnish the same assistance to the unfruitful branches, but leaves them to be monuments of instability. Are you a monument of instability today? Or are you like the slug, the sanctified slug? Man, I like that. Who moves bit by bit by bit. Because every person, every converted person must abide in Christ. And I can't go any further without saying this, and with this we'll close. Know this, that abiding in Christ means that you are abiding in the gospel. Did you hear that? Abiding in Christ means that you're abiding in the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus that informs and empowers every act of obedience. That means I will never do this. That means I can never congratulate myself for any good that I do to the glory of God. That means you can never congratulate yourselves for any good that you do to the glory of God. Why? Because it all came from the gospel. Every good that comes from our life is a result of gospel grace. It is the gospel that informs and empowers every act of obedience. I trust that today that you are experiencing the incredible Joy of walking with Jesus. Now, if you're paying close attention with me in John chapter 15, you will realize that we didn't touch on very much this morning. In one sense, we touched on a lot. I'm looking at the clock. In another sense, there's a lot that was left out. Next week, we will continue to unpack the marks of a converted person. And then, in a very sober fashion, we will look at the marks of an unconverted person and pray that God, by the power of his spirit, will prompt us to obey him all to his glory. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for being our vine dresser. God, how often do we groan when you discipline us, but we we know now that it is for our good. We know that every trial, every piece of adversity, 
every moment of bitter providence is not only allowed by you, but it is, in fact, ordained by you. Many of those times we recognize that you will send us through those seasons of bitter providence as a point of discipline or as a point of of strengthening us so that we would be more resolute. Whatever it happens to be, God, we want to commit ourselves to you with fresh and bold resolve on this day. God, I thank you for the teaching of your son, the Lord Jesus, and all its clarity, how it points us to the gospel. God, thank you that we uh, have nothing to congratulate ourselves for. We only adore you. The only boast that we have, as Paul said, is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we remember that cross now. We remember the completed work of your son on that cross and his resurrection as we come to the table and partake of the elements. We remember this morning that the bread points to the body of Jesus and the cup points to his precious blood that was spilled for us, for our sins. God, we partake in obedience and recognize that Uh, The Lord Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the hunger and the thirst of our souls. Amen.